You are listening to the Financial Clarity for Doctors podcast by Finity Group, LLC, where we discuss the pertinent financial planning topics facing physicians and other medical professionals. Discussions in this show should not be construed as specific recommendations or investment advice. Always consult with your investment professional before making important investment decisions. Securities offered through Cambridge Investment Research, Inc., a registered broker-dealer, member FINRA, SIPC. And now, here are your hosts, Rochelle Van. All right, everyone. Welcome to Financial Clarity for Doctors. I'm Corey Janoff, joined as always by Rochelle Vanderzanden. Thanks for listening, everyone. Yes, and today we've got a special episode. We have two special guests. Um, one. Carlos Herrera and Julio Cacho. They are the founding partners of Quantor Capital, an asset management firm. And, um, and Julio is the CIO of Inscription Capital. And uh, Juan is also involved with Inscription Capital. They're a registered investment advisory firm out in Houston, Texas. And we've got a lot of exciting things to talk about with them from uh, asset management strategies, portfolio risk, investment strategies, talk a little bit about um, you know the the behavioral and psychological aspects of investing, as that's a an important component to investing. So today we're going to dive do a little deeper dive into the investment investment side of things and investing world. So if that's uh, what you're into, this will be for you. So we might get a little technical in today's episode, but good stuff. So thanks for joining us, guys. Thanks for having Thank us. You. Thank you. Thank you for inviting. Yeah, Rochelle, you want to kick us off here? Yeah, absolutely. I'm I'm not sure that any of our listeners will know you two very well. So before we jump into a whole bunch of detailed questions, do you two mind telling us a little bit about your backgrounds and how you got to where you are today? I'll let Julio go first. He's got an, he's got more interesting background than I do. <laughs> Take it away, Julio. So uh, actually, Juan Carlos and I met uh, a few years ago, like five or six years ago. Um, and uh, in New York, when I was working for Ziv uh, uh, Brothers Investments, which is a private hedge fund, um, he used to have a hedge fund. So then he came to me to see if the Ziv Brothers will be willing to invest. Uh, so then we became friends. And then I moved to Houston. And here in Houston, um, we start talking. And then we decided to start Quantor Capital. And since then, we have been working together. Before I worked at Ziv Brothers Investments in New York, I did a PhD in economics at Princeton University. There I specialized in, um, I specialized in um, portfolio construction, asset allocation, and all my published papers are in, in that topic. Uh, before the PhD, um, I, I, I am originally from Mexico, so I moved to the U.S. to basically study my my Ph.D. So that's about my background. What about you? Yeah, and so yeah, basically my background is I I, I went to University of Texas in Austin, uh, graduated there, went to uh, work at a consulting firm, boutique firm in Madrid, Spain, for about you know a year and a half. Came back to the states, worked at Citigroup, private bank. Was there for three years before I started a hedge fund with a lifelong friend of mine. We sold that hedge fund in 2015, right when I met Julio. That's actually how I met Julio. I was, I was trying to get him to approve of our hedge fund in New York when he was managing this billion dollar family office. In, uh, and they never invested in the hedge fund, but we became good friends and, and then became partners later in life. But uh, 
but yeah, with Thulio, we started Quantro Capital in 2015. And then, uh, and then joined in, uh, in creating Inscription Capital uh, about two years ago, and, and that's where we are today. Exciting times. You guys have quite the backgrounds in both either working or, or studying in and outside the United States. How, how has that shaped your views on investing? You know, I think there's a there's a big home bias we all have in investing that um, people like to invest in things that we're familiar with. You know, if you ask most Americans, I think that they will say uh, they prefer to invest in U.S. companies or even in the public markets, you know, invest more in the S&P 500 and kind of have a reluctant nature or unknown to invest in somewhere else. Um, but at the end, if you really think about it, you know, the more you diversify, the better. That's kind of investing 101. And so um, I think it just gives, it's given me a big, a more broad global approach to investing that, you know, we don't live in a bubble here in the US. There are there are pretty smart people elsewhere in the world too. And, um, and it's good to, I think, you know, kind of see what the rest of the world is also doing. Makes sense. And then there's a, a stereotype out there, and it's probably a lot of truth to it, that a lot of people make some poor investment decisions or, you know, everyone's made some regrettable investment decisions at some point in their in their lifetime. You know, why is that? Why do people sometimes make bad investment decisions? You know, I think it's you don't know. It goes back to the you don't know what you don't know. And um, there is uh, there is a lot of behavioral um mishaps I think that investors have because investing at the end I think is a very uh, I I, I compare investing a lot to dieting right so if you think about it the right thing to do right the diet of investing like the the way to do it isn't this mysterious thing I mean kind of a lot of the evidence of what to do has been out there for 50 years and it's been kind of published in papers and the academic the academics have really looked into this a lot um the problem is, is that like dieting, this, there's a lot of temptations, right? So it's like when you see, you know, this deal that your buddy showed you or cryptocurrencies now or Tesla or whatever the new fad is, right? There is this, there's this fear of missing out one, right? That people need to, you know, need to step off the train and can't see their buddies making a lot of money. And then they get there like, well, why am I not making all this money? Um, it's kind of similar to like, you know, the temptations we have with, wine and cookies and stuff like this with dieting, right? It's like, you know, we know what to do. We don't have to buy 5,000 diet books. It's like just exercise more and eat healthy, right? Uh, but it's so hard to do that, right? Because of all the temptations. Same thing with investing, I think. It's, it's, it, there's, there's too many temptations out there to distract us from, from, from just the simplicity of what we should probably be doing. Is there like a scientific way to kind of approach investing so that you don't have to worry about those temptations quite as much. Yeah, I'll let Julio kind of get into this, but it's um, <laughs> it, uh, the basic science, right? If you look at it from the very big conclusion of it, I think Julio w- would be that you know risk and reward are related, right? Can you elaborate on that a little bit? Uh, so yes, there is a scientific way, and the scientific way to to invest is following the scientific method. That's really that's really what science means, following the scientific method. And what that means is that you observe the facts, then you propose a theory, and then you test that theory. And the theory that e- explains better uh, the observations is the one that wins. So currently, we have uh, two big, robust uh, theories based on, on the facts. 
the main facts, the two, the, I would say the, 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 the two main facts is that expected return and risk are related. Okay, so what that means is that if you want to take uh, a small amount of risk, then you should expect low returns. However, if you want high expected returns, then you need to take a good amount of risk. And the other fact is that most investors do not outperform the, a market in the long run. So those are kind of the two main, main, uh, main facts. And to elaborate on the outperformance is, I think a lot of people get confused by this. It, um, outperformance basically means that if you take the same level of risk as compared to the benchmark, that you're making a higher return. That it, what it's not say, it, this, this theory doesn't say that you cannot make higher returns. You just have to take higher risk to, to, to make those higher returns. So I think a lot of people get confused and they say, well, I made 50% returns last year in my portfolio. Therefore, I made alpha. I outperformed the market. Maybe. But did you do it in a risk-adjusted way, right? Did you take the same amount of risk as investing, say, in the 500 largest companies in the U.S. and still made 50% returns? Most of the time, that's not the case. Most of the times, it's I have three stocks and they were called Tesla, Facebook, or whatever, and they made 50% returns. I'm like, okay, great. But you, now we have to see if we can match the risk of the S&P 500 to the risk that you took. And now, risk-adjusted, did you outperform? And then that, that basically is the definition, I think, of outperforming. So then what are the ways to either take on more risk and then how do you measure that risk adjusted if we actually did outperform based on that additional risk, if, if you can scientifically measure it? So one way to take uh, risk uh, is, or the best way to take risk is to diversify as much as you can. Now, if you diversify a lot, uh, your, probably your risk is going to be low, but also your expected return. So if you want to have higher expected return, then you can do two things. Um, one is to, to use leverage. So that will be the best. So you diversify very well across all the assets, and then you take leverage on that, on that portfolio. The second one uh, is concentrating a risk in a in multiple risky, riskier assets. So for example, uh, instead of diversifying in bonds and stocks, you only invest in stocks. That will have more risk, but also more expected return. I think our listeners are, are sometimes at a, a fairly like beginner level for, for those of our listeners that don't know what leverage is. Can you explain that a little bit? Yeah, leverage, what it means is that you borrow money to invest. It's similar to when you buy a, a, a house, for example, that you, you have a mortgage in order to buy your, your, your home, uh, that's leverage, right? And, 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 and the main idea of why you want to use, to use a, a mortgage is because you hope that the expected return of the asset, which is your house, is going to be higher than the cost of your leverage of, of your mortgage. So therefore, you're going to be making a spread between the appreciation of your home and the cost that you are paying for the mortgage. The same thing, for example, when you start a, a new company, many people borrow money to start a company. And the reason they borrow is because they are hoping that expected returns in their company is going to be higher than the cost of the debt that they 
that they have. The same thing you can do when you are investing, uh, but more diversified. So you can invest in multiple assets, in many companies, many uh, real real estate assets, commodities, bonds, and you can use the same principle. You can borrow money to invest in those assets. So that's leverage, borrowing money. I think the real estate one is an easy one for people to wrap their heads around. You know, you could buy, let's say it's a rental property and it costs you $500,000. You could either pay 500000 in cash and hypothetically, let's say that the rental income just is enough to cover all the expenses. So it doesn't cost you anything more. And then down the road, you sell it for a million dollars. You just made a 100% rate of return on your money. Or let's say you put $100,000, a 20% down payment and finance the rest. And, you know, same scenario. I know the numbers don't quite work perfectly. It's not, it's you know, not quite apples to apples, but let's say that again, rental income covers all the expenses and, you know, mortgage payment and everything. And then you sell, sell that same property for a million dollars. So your, your cost there was a hundred thousand. You sold it for a million. The previous example, your cost was 500,000, sold it for a million. You know, now you have a, a 10x return instead of a, uh, a 1x return. So, um, same logic there, but there's a little, and that's a good, and, and, and that's a good, that's a good analogy because I think people, people see real estate going up a lot and a lot of people making a lot of money in real estate lately. And the reason people make a lot of money in real estate is if the asset class goes up just a little bit and most of real estate is leveraged commercial multifamily, single family homes. And there's usually a ton of leverage on it, right? People usually put 20 to 30% down payments on all these buildings. And so it doesn't take much for the building to appreciate for your 20 to 30% of equity to make a lot of money. So, but that also is a two-way street, right? So remember, you know, and this is where the risk comes in, right? So as you can make a lot of money on the way up. You can also be wiped out and lose a lot of money on the way down. It doesn't take much also, the more leverage you use. You have to really be aware of those risks and know how to implement those risks. But it is a, it is a way to, take in, to increase your risk. And real estate's a perfect example of how people do that all the time. We have a lot of conversations with clients sometimes about whether or not they need to take on more risk. And, and sometimes they don't. You know, they, they can accomplish their goals with being well-diversified and, and not taking on additional risks like leverage. And and so, you know, maybe they don't need to do that. But when do you think it's appropriate to take on more risk? And, and what does the, the investor look like to you that where it makes sense for them? I think it's a very personal thing, right? I think risk, how much risk you can take uh, yeah. really depends on, I think, finding someone like you guys really that can help uh, the investor really decide how much can they tolerate to try to get to this risk tolerance, right? So like, let me say, let me take a step back. I think it's important for investors to always not try to time the market. First of all, I think if you have money and you're going to be investing, be, it's always better to be fully invested than to have money in cash waiting for like a pullback or whatnot. Um, but then once you're fully invested, then you can decide how to manage that risk. The way we like to kind of simplify it for people is to say, look, <clears throat> we understand there's a humongous psychological component to this and not everyone's going to be able to tolerate the same ty types of risks. So we, what, what we tell clients is, you know, try seeing your money and split it out between three buckets, right? So if you have, say, a million dollars, just to give a round number, um, and 
you needed say a hundred thousand dollars in cash for a rainy day in case like you lose your job that's going to cover six months living expenses then okay let's just take a hundred thousand of a million and leave it in cash and not do anything with it it's there for an emergency and then the rest of the nine hundred thousand dollars it's going to depend on the risk tolerance and so what we try to do is we try to bucket the money out into two buckets because i think people like to see this more in, in in these terms where let's say someone is super risk averse we're going to put out of the 900 that's left, let's say $700,000 or $800,000 for an easier example, $800,000 into a super diversified portfolio that's going to be investing in every stock, bond, commodity out there, index-based, low cost. It's you know going to be very boring. It's going to give them maybe a 4% return with like a possibility of being down maybe 10, 15% in a very bad environment. If the investor can't tolerate being down 10 or 15%, by the way, then then we can't do anything. <laughs> like it's gotta be, it's gotta, it's gotta stay in cash, right? It's gotta stay in a money market fund or something. So they have to be taking, uh, willing to take a little bit of risk um, to get this 4% over time. And then we explain, okay, well then, then we have like the $100,000 that's left, we can actually put it into a 100% equity portfolio or a leveraged version of this previous portfolio. That now, the example is, this will try to make 15% returns or 10% returns, right? But your downside might be 50%, 60%. Are you okay being down 50 or 60%? If it's a small amount of money, if it's only $100,000 out of the million, most people will say, oh, you know what? Yeah, that's fine. I mean, if, if I have if I have 10% of my money that's only down 50%, I can tolerate that. So what ends up happening though, is if you don't rebalance those two, over time, portfolio three, this 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 risky portfolio, will eventually become the largest portfolio if it, if it compounds at 10, 15, right? So you're kind of training them into not having the second buffer portfolio, right? Which you don't really need technically, but it's a psychological, it, um, I think necessity for most people to, to have this kind of buffer. So the, the important thing is to stick with it, right? And so it's really figuring out how can I have the highest probabilities emotionally to stick with it? And I think that's the sweet spot um, for people to, to decide. That's where behavioral coaching comes in. <laughs> I, I totally, I mean, I think it's, yeah. I mean, you know, it, it completely is. Because look, with, with private investments like our homes or a company we buy or lending money to people, um, the emotional factor isn't there as much as the public markets because you don't see the price of anything every day, right? Because there's a hidden mark, there's no value. Like for example, my house today is worth, when I tell my people that my house is worth zero today, they're like, what do you mean? Like, yeah, it's worth zero. If I wanted to sell my house today, right? If I wanted to press a button and sell it, there's no buyer right now. So if I'm selling and there's no buyer today, the price is dro drops to zero. Tomorrow, if I want to go sell, right, and the buyer appears, well, then it's worth something, right? And so it's, I, I get I a bid. And so when you open up your iPhone and you see the stock market every day, what you're seeing is people bidding on your money, right? It's like, oh, here, there's a person coming in and knocking on your door. Hey, I'm going to bid. So this is kind of like the, the, the psychological effect that, that being able to see the price every day or knowing what the value, the true value is of your asset every day is a great thing because you can liquidate it immediately. But it's a psychological, you know, bad thing sometimes for most people because it plays on our emotions a lot. So true. 
And going back to the risk return thing, just to appease the compliance gods, full disclosure, past performance, no predictor of future returns. And, you know, we, we want to make sure that, um, you know, we're investing appropriately for our goals, which I guess, you know, I like that, that, you know, three bucket strategy, having that buffer and, you know, it really depends on what those goals and objectives are. You know, I don't know, Rochelle and I talk about this in almost every episode. Like, how much do we actually need to take on that risk? We may not need the best performing portfolio to ultimately reach our goals if we're saving an appropriate amount for those goals. But that's where having that third bucket, all right, here, you know, we've got our, our first couple that are, are the more moderate conservative. They're set to achieve those goals, but then let's take a little bit more outsized risk with the third one. If it doesn't work out in our favor, that's okay. It's not going to set us back at all, maybe, but uh, it, it'll help only accelerate that path if it does well for us. So I think really making sure people are, are, are not taking on outsized risk when it's not appropriate for them. But uh, if they can stomach it and if it is a scenario where they can handle it, then yeah, it could be a great way to potentially achieve those goals and, and faster. Yeah, I mean, the simplification is, I would say, and I tell my clients, look, if you cannot tolerate being down 50 or 60%, don't put any money in the stock market. Like, just don't put any money in it. Because that's not, it's not realistic to, to tell someone that they're not going to potentially, um, you know, even if you just invest in the broadest diversified index fund that invests in all the global funds, historically speaking, they those index funds have also been down 50, 60% at some point in time, right? So if you cannot tolerate that risk, it's better not to be in it because that's, that's go, it's going to happen at some point eventually. Um, I think a huge part of our job is just, you know, teaching people to expect that. You know, it's, it's going to happen if we're invested, if we're broadly diversified, you're going to see a drop in your investments at some point. But it doesn't necessarily matter if you don't need to sell out of anything until 30 years from now. Like we a lot of our clients are very young, you know, so we're we're working with long term investors. Yeah. And I think the fear is uh, the fear is that when you're down 50 or 60 percent. And let's say you're a very active trader, you're stock picking, right? If you're a young person and you're stock picking, there could then then people get extremely fearful because there's a fear of that oh, the companies you pick going bankrupt, which could happen. But if you have a broadly diversified index fund, for example, and it's down 50 or 60 percent, it's 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 easier to work with clients and say, look, you're going to be fine. Like if if that goes to zero, we're going to have bigger problems in the world. <laughs> it's it's I mean, that every company just went bankrupt. <laughs> You're more worried about finding a cave or... <laughs> or trading sticks for stones at that point. Absolutely. You know, speaking of those like individual investors investing in individual stocks, you know, what thoughts do you have or, or, or I don't know if advice is the right word, but, but um, for people who are continuously watching the stock market and trying to find those opportunities like in GameStop or cryptos or whatever the, the you know, hot thing is of the day, day trading, if you will. I would say, um, but beware of your competition. And I think people don't see who they're actually competing against in the markets because we're kind of isolated with our technology and our phones and our, in our computer screens that we don't actually realize that this is kind of a zero sum game, right? Where there's the market return. And for every person that outperforms the market, there's going to be someone that has to underperform it. Right. And there are billions of dollars out there in 
banks, hedge funds, sovereign wealth funds that are trying to pay millions of billions of dollars to the smartest people in the world trying to figure this out too. And so when you sit down at your computer screen or your phone and you're trying to pick the stock and you believe that XYZ is you found the, the value of the century, maybe ask yourself, am I the only one that is identifying this, right? Or is there someone out there in the world that's also seeing what I'm seeing? By the way, if you're in the public markets, you have the same information as everyone else, right? And do you have privileged information that is gonna be very unique? Because chances are the market's pricing in everything that you think that's good or bad about that certain investment, right? It's all, because remember the market's forward looking, right? So the market is now already kind of taking all the available information and pricing it in today. So it's a little bit like sitting down at a, I think Texas Hold'em table, right? And if you sit down with the best poker players in the world, sure, you can go on a hot streak and you can make a lot of money um, and get lucky. Uh, but chances are the longer you play and sit there, uh, the skillful players will probably emerge, right? At some point. And so that's what, I would say basically to that. And, and by the way, the most important thing that I think Julio will say is all the empirical evidence suggests that even the professional money managers are not going to be able to outperform the market in the long run. Um, and these are the guys that are being paid all the millions of dollars and this, do this for a living. Um, if they are, if they have a very slim chance of outperforming, probably a day trader um, at home is probably going to have an even harder time. On their app, on their phone. <laughs> yep. During their day job and in between caring for kids and whatnot. Yep. I think another thing to uh, highlight there is the market's a great place. Like you said, we've got all this information being factored in continuously. It, it's, for the most part, pretty efficient. But you have all these people coming to one central location to do their trading. But those people might be playing a different game. You know, If you're a day trader and you're just looking at trying to or, you know, even if you're a larger firm, you're just closing your books out by the end of the day and you're completely out by the end of the day, buying, selling, whatever your transactions are. That's a completely different strategy than the long-term investor that's looking at a buy and hold pattern. So if you're con- like going back to the watching the price movements and everything, it, it's completely different strategies, completely different games being played, but it's all in the same court. So it can get c- pretty confusing. So really understand what your what your purpose is and what you're doing there. And hopefully that'll help keep you on the the right path for whatever your goals and objectives are. For sure. For sure. So we've talked a little bit about a couple of different things. One of them is indexing and then one of them is like portfolio managers. So can we talk a little tiny bit about like active versus passive management with mutual funds? And like, do you think indexing is going to have a long term impact on the on the stock market or what do you think that looks like long term? Sure. I mean, and here goes back to the question that you asked about science, right? I mean, all the empirical evidence uh, has been consistent since the last 70 years, uh, showing that most professional investors, even mutual funds, underperform in the long run. Actually, FAMA, a paper in 2010, shows that 97% of the active investors underperform the market in the long run. Okay, so uh, the facts are there. Um, So it's extremely, extremely uh, difficult, unlikely to outperform a market. Uh, Therefore, because because of this, then investors are better off replicating a market than trying to beat the market. 
And there are many theories about why it's so hard to beat the market. There are many theories, right? But the facts are the facts. Now, there are some theories that explain why it's so difficult to outperform. One of these theories is the efficient market hypothesis, for example. But there's also another uh, big, uh, big theory, which is that people make systematic mistakes, which is behavioral. And the two theories arrive to the same conclusion, that is extremely unlikely to outperform the market. So, yeah, I mean, I think uh, 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 passive investing is going to continue growing. Uh, it's still relatively small when you take into account all the trade trades that are done during the day. Most of those trades are by far active, um, but we are getting a slowly there. People are starting to realize more and more about the facts, and that's why we have more and more people moving to, to passive investing. So yes, the way to go is to try to replicate the market, uh, not using in index, indexes by themselves in the, in the following. Some people use indices, indices to uh, try to outperform the market. So they will buy an index and then sell, so they will try to time the market. That's not, passive, that's not really passive investing. That's just using a passive instrument to try to do active investing. Uh, that's different. What I'm talking about is truly replicating the market without any active view. Uh, because if you try to do an active view, then you know the facts. 97% of mutual funds do not outperform in the long run. You've probably seen some people talk about how if indexing becomes too prominent, you know, that behavioral issue is just further highlighted because, you know, people are going to try and still time the market, buy and sell out of fear or greed, and that's going to force the indexes to either buy or sell assets to you know, stay tracking the index. What do you think that means potentially for indexing, and do you think that would then create an opportunity for more active management in those scenarios? Does that make sense? Okay, here are different here are different things. So in the limit, of course, if everybody does passive, everybody, then of course uh, uh, there could be uh, opportunities. But we are so far away of that scenario, and especially because people are greedy. I mean, I think I think I, uh, there are very few people that actually do real passive investing, real real passive, very few. Now. In terms of the other question that you were saying that uh, people will be forced to sell uh, uh, because they're passive, uh, actually that's not. The definition of passive is almost buy and hold, right? I mean, that's the definition. You buy and hold. The people that moves the market are actually the active investors, not the passive investors. Uh, there are thousands of papers that show that the activity of active investors is by far much larger than the outflows and inflows from truly passive investors. As I said, using an index doesn't mean that you're passive. Doesn't mean that you're passive. If you're using an index to time the market, you're not passive. You're active. And who is moving the market are those active people. 
But if you're truly passive, if more people were truly passive, you will expect actually less volatility. Uh, but the, the thing here is that in, in equilibrium, you will never see the extreme of everybody passive. That, that equilibrium will never, will never get there. And we are so far away from that, so far away, that I think it's my least of my concerns. And then to add to that, Julio, I think it's more about also when you see the fund flows going into passive funds, we don't really know, like Julio mentioned, if all those flows are passive investors. Like, for example, we've had how many hedge funds out there are just using these passive funds to implement a a view they have, right? Or a specific sector. There's a lot of other financial advisors, right? They're also using sector funds and claiming them passive but at the end it's it's also active in a way right because you're not you're you're not just in a broadly the only definition really of passive is to own a broadly diversified index of whatever market you're trying to replicate bond market equity markets cap weighted and that's it that's that's passive and anything else is going like even owning the S&P 500 technically speaking is active because if you're owning the S&P 500, you're still betting that the 500 largest companies in the U.S. will outperform the small caps. You're still betting that they're going to outperform the international companies, right? So technically speaking, that's still being active, right? You, you still have an active view in the U.S. only, right? I guess the only truly passive, to be technically correct, investment in the equity markets is to own a cap-weighted index of all of the global companies, all of them, cap-weighted. I think that's what I wanted to highlight, the difference between a passive investment and invest or or investing, if you will. You know, like like if everyone goes all index funds and puts all their money in index funds, you're still going to have people moving money in and out. And then that's going to just create more volatility because the index funds, if the market's going down, are going to be forced to sell to meet those redemption requests, further driving prices down and vice versa. You know, if everyone's buying, they've got to buy to match, you know, and it's going to just further drive prices up. So it's just going to enhance volatility. So until people, which will never happen, like you said, can just buy and hold for ever, um, we're always going to see those ups and downs in the markets. Yeah, so. exactly. Cause if you, yeah. Because of the active investors, mainly. Mm-hmm. That's right, because of, yeah. because there are always people are. Uh, anytime you find a, a, a free launch, which that will mean uh, trying to outperform. Uh, so every time you you kind of identify that, people will go directly and try to exploit those inefficiencies immediately, right? So every time it separates from the true value, people try immediately to arbitrage that. I mean, there are. I mean, we as humans are extremely competitive, extremely competitive. And as I said, all the evidence shows since 70 years ago that we are extremely competitive, extremely competitive. Uh, there's no evidence that we have become less competitive. Actually, this is the opposite. We are more and more competitive. But because of that, it becomes a circle. It's an equilibrium, right? So you will have part of the many people trying to identify the inefficiencies just by nature. That's natural selection. That comes from Darwin. Uh, and other people are going to benefit from just writing all, all the positions in the aggregate. Uh, so it's uh, very unlike, I mean, it's a theoretical exercise, but there's no empirical evidence at all that we can reach uh, uh, like a full pa- everybody being passive. That's extremely unlikely. There's no empirical evidence of that. There's no research about that. 
uh, robust research about that. Uh, and it's actually the opposite, right? The opposite, which, which says that actually people are all the time looking for free lunch, all the time. You and I are looking all the time for free lunch. And we are millions, and every time we are more and more. And there are people with billions of dollars trying to all the time. We have more hedge funds than ever before, more mutual funds than never before, more indices than never before, more people doing trading than ever before. I have a question that's kind of the opposite of everything that we've been talking about. <laughs> but basically, and we're not going to hold you to this, this is just a fun question. And obviously involves timing the market, but where do you think we're at in the market cycle? Just, you know, hypothetically speaking. Yeah, um, that's a tough one. <laughs> that is a very tough question. <laughs> no one has any idea. That's why we do <laughs> passive management. <laughs> no, and look, I, th I think it's it's impossible to know. Um, you know, I, I've always... I, I always used to believe that there was bubbles and that there was um, such a thing until I really started also reading the research, especially the research from Eugene Fama, who won the Nobel Peace Prize, where when you start understanding what he means when there's no bubbles is that we, we can't identify a bubble before the fact, right? So, so you can only know that there was a bubble after the fact. So because if so, if bubbles exist, we would have we we would be able to predict them, and no one can, right? And we we, and and I hate it when in the news and a lot of times like CNBC will come on. I'm sure you guys have seen this, right? And they and and they'll be like joining us right now is the guy who correctly predicted the 2008 financial crisis, and so all of a sudden he gets a lot of like credence, like people believe him of what he's about to say. What people don't know is there's a, there's a lot of survivorship bias in there because he got one thing right out of like maybe 10,000 predictions. Right. And so and the other nine thousand nine hundred ninety nine were wrong, but we don't they don't highlight that. They just say, hey, here's the guy who said one thing correctly. Therefore, we should pay attention to his thoughts on what's going to happen tomorrow. And at the end, think about it. Right. Like how many people in 2019 correctly predicted that COVID was going to hit and, and, and the world was, was going to be the way it was in 2020? Like no one. And that's the that's the point. Right. The point is that there's way too many variables out there to try to see whether or not we're in a certain cycle. You know, Ray Dalio is out there a lot talking about the long-term debt cycle, the short-term debt cycle. Maybe he's right. I don't know. Right. I mean, he's got a lot of information that, but even Ray Dalio has been wrong multiple times. Right. He's probably been wrong more often than he's right. Um, we just don't, we're just not aware of all the times he's been wrong. I think it's kind of like the, the main thing. So going back to that question, I think it's mainly my recommendation would always be if you can get your risk tolerance right, it shouldn't matter what point of the of the of the cycle we're in because again you can't do anything about it let's say let's say that we're saying hey we're we're, we're at a very we're we're approaching bubble territories and right now is not a good time to invest if we say that people are immediately going to interpret that as i should sell i should get out or i should not put money in not putting money in or selling are the same thing and so now your market timing, which we now know in looking at the empirical evidence that market timing is almost impossible to, to do correctly. Because I always tell my clients, if I, if, I was, if I was right and I took my money out of the market right now and I was right and the market crashed tomorrow, great, I'm gonna feel great. I'm gonna feel so confident that I was so smart in doing that. But now guess what? Now I gotta time it perfectly again to get back in. And if I don't time it perfectly to get back in, I am never going to compound what I thought that those compounding returns are going to look like. Well, I'll take it a step further on the it doesn't matter uh, point that you made. 
it, like if you're a long-term investor, it doesn't matter where the market's at today because 30 years from now, odds are it's going to be a heck of a lot higher than wherever it is today. And if you need your money in the near future, the next several years, you have no business being anywhere near the stock market because we've seen time and time again, it, it's a roller coaster ride. And if you need money next year for a home down payment, you probably don't want it in stocks because there's a decent chance it could be less than what it's worth a year from now than it is today when you actually need your money. So that's where aligning your investments and the risk that you're taking with those investments with your goals and the time horizon for those goals is extremely important. And, and I think to that, Corey, it's like, it's just, it's just people need to understand that just because you can see the price of something every day go down, right? It de- your house is also going down, right? I mean, your, 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 um, your business is also going down, right? You just can't see it. So we react differently to it. And so I think people just have to know that in the pub, when you go and invest in your 401ks and your IRAs, and you go to invest money in the long run for retirement or whatever it is your goals are in the public markets, you're just going to be able to see the price every day ignore it. <laughs> like, just like you do your house value, just like you do your private investments. Um, if you're doing it for the right reasons and you're broadly diversified, just, just go into it knowing that, Hey, look, it's okay. I know I'm going to be down. I know it's, it's, it's going to happen, right? I know I'm going to be down at some point. I just kind of have to come to the realization that I have to be okay with it. <laughs> And psychologically, we view those assets differently. Like we view our, our stocks differently than our house. Like thanks to you know the internet and Zillow and Redfin and whatnot, you can more or less see a rough value of your house at any given day. And you can see if the price is dropping, but we don't think, oh, the price of my house is going down. I better sell it and list it. No one thinks that way. So admit- well, I'll, put it, I'll, I'll make an example right now. If I came and I said, hey, I'll give you 20 bucks for your house, knocked on your door. Guess what? I'm, I'm making a bid. Yeah. Hey, I'm telling you right now it's i'm a buyer i'll give you 20 bucks for your house uh you would say no to that because you think the house is worth something a lot higher than that right okay well then use the same psychology with your stock investments if the market one day you wake up you look at your phone the market says that they're offering you 50 percent less than what you paid for it i think it goes back to knowing what you're buying to your point, right? Where I think a lot of people, when they invest in the stock market and the bond market, they don't really know what they're buying. They just they're just seeing a ticker, and they're just seeing it go up and down, and they don't realize that. Oh, if I have Apple, like I actually own a piece of Apple. Like it's like, yeah, yeah you own a piece of Apple. Um, that's what you own. And I think we we see it a lot as like, especially look, I love I love the fact that technology has empowered people to do more and get more involved in investing, like Robinhood. But I think the two-edged sword with Robinhood and all that is that it also looks it it, it gamifies. It and makes it like a casino. It makes it like DraftKings or like you know these these. So on the good side is you get access to the markets in an easier way. On the bad side is it's kind of like going to Las Vegas. <laughs> I often tell my clients to treat it exactly like that too. They're like, yeah. "Ooh, I did this," and I'm like, "Cool, was it fun?" <laughs> you know, like, if, exactly. if so, then goal accomplished. Hopefully, you didn't yeah. put too much money in there. <laughs> if only someone would bring us free drinks while we're trading on our Robin yeah. app. <laughs> that would be a better way to do that. <laughs> I know Julio, you have to jump here. So maybe last question. Um, you know, what do you, what can investors do for themselves to try and obtain the best outcomes for their portfolios, their goals, and whatnot? So the first thing is to, as we have been discussing, is to notice that uh, expected return and risk are linked. Okay, so that's the first thing we need to to to, to keep in mind. The second is that is. Um, extremely unlikely to outperform a market 
If you put these two things together, then the, the best thing to do is to understand your risk tolerance, as, as you were discussing, really understand your risk tolerance, and then select which market you want to invest in based on your risk tolerance and replicate the market. That's what you have to do. Not try to time it, not trying to choose what's going to be the next Facebook. No, there, all the empirical evidence says that you, the odds against you are extremely high if you try to outperform. So the best thing to do is just to replicate uh, all, uh, all, uh, whatever market you want to replicate, but just replicate it. And, uh, and, and that's it. So what, mar what market are you gonna choose to invest depends on your risk tolerance, Tolerance, as you said, if uh, you are risk averse, extremely risk averse, and you don't want your portfolio to fluctuate, maybe you can only invest in treasury bonds, right? Uh, but if you are risk tolerant and your goal is a long-term goal to retirement and you can support volatility, maybe you should only have a, um, a, stock, um, a stock portfolio that replicates the global stock market. So that's, that, that would be my suggestion. There we go. Thank you very much both for joining us. This was really helpful today. Thank you so much for the invitation. Pleasure to be here. And thank you guys for your time and, and for having us on. Yeah, appreciate it, guys. Thank you. We would love to hear your feedback and suggestions for future topics you'd like us to cover. You can get in touch with the show by emailing podcast at thefinitygroup.com or by following Finity Group on Facebook, Twitter, Instagram, LinkedIn, and YouTube at Finity Group LLC. You can follow me on Twitter at Corey Janoff CFP, Instagram at Corey Janoff, or on LinkedIn under my name, Corey Janoff. You can follow me on Twitter at Rochelle Finance or on Instagram Vanderzanden Rochelle or on LinkedIn under my name, Rochelle Vanderzanden. Check out all of the podcast episodes on the finitygroup.com slash podcast on our Finity Group YouTube channel or your favorite podcast app. And don't forget to check out our financial clarity blog at thefinitygroup.com slash blog. Thanks for listening to this episode of Financial Clarity for Doctors by Finity Group LLC.